Let's pray together. Father, as we begin, as we open your word to us, uh, Lord, we want this day to be about you. We want to hear a word from you. Because, Lord, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of your mouth. Lord, so often we take our cues from our culture, and we don't want to do that. We want to be like the blessed people who meditate on your word day and night, and that our lives would conform to what your word says to us. So, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, help us to hear your counsel to us today. May the Spirit himself speak to each one. And, Lord, I pray that this day and this message would be about your name being glorified before us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have looked at the passage or kept up with your reading, you will recognize that 517 to 618 is a large chunk. And I'm not sure exactly how that happens, although I must tell you, we did have a little bit of trouble with our scheduling with Labor Day, and then, of course, we didn't know a new candidate was coming to speak. And so in order to provide him next week with a, a very reasonable, coherent message to speak about from Matthew, we've kind of put this all together into one big chunk. Now, uh, before you, you know, come to the conclusion that I'm taking one for the team here, it's not exactly that bad, right? Um, because this passage really does have a big, coherent thought. It's not as difficult as it might seem even though there are a lot of verses and a lot of concepts here, there is, again, this very one coherent theme that, it, once you understand it, tends to make everything else kind of fall in place. So let me just start with a simple statement that I, that I think will uh, summarize much of what we want to look at today, and that would be this. Uh, not that one. There we, there we go. <laughs> now we're back on track. The greatest enemy of true spirituality is respectability. Now just let that sink in for a second. Or we could say it like this, the, the, the greatest enemy of a genuine relationship with God is respectability. I say that because it is the very first human impulse, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, to cover up our sins, to cover up our nakedness, to cover up uh, all that is ugly about us with something superficial, with fig leaves. But the trouble with that is just twofold. Number one, it grossly underestimates how serious sin actually is, and it grossly overestimates our ability to do anything about it. Well, only God can cure sin. I know that's probably a very simple statement, but we sometimes forget. Only God can cure sin. Only God can make uh, an inward cleansing and a change that results in true spirituality. So if you would like to um, see the concept clothed in different words, let me give you a famous quote that perhaps you have heard before. Jesus did not come to make good men better, but to make dead men alive. It's not about respectability. It's not about appearing good. It's about dead men who need new eternal life. Or if you'd like a biblical quote, we can go back to the sweet passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where Samuel was looking to anoint one of um, Jesse's sons to be king. And Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It is a universal biblical theme 
that I want to look at today and I think is the essence of what we're talking about in this opening salvo of Jesus' campaign. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the kind of language I want to use, the, the terms the, that I'd like to define here, are two, reputation and character. So you can define them different ways, but for our purposes today, when I say reputation, I want to talk about what people think you are. That is, how you appear to people. And of course, the contrast to that is character, which, which what God knows you to be, how we are on the inside. I think you can see the difference here then. So when they align, what we have is integrity. If I am truly good on the inside and people think me to be good, then they have a true sense of what I really am. If, on the other hand, they don't align, then we have hypocrisy. If I am not truly good on the inside, if God knows me to be a fake, yet I appear good on the outside, then that is hypocrisy. And that's, those are exactly the words which uh, Matthew, or it's Jesus, uses here, especially in chapter 6, to refer to the Pharisees. Now, even when they align in sort of a bad way, so for instance, someone does not have good character, but they make no pretense to be good, and their reputation is poor as well, well, it's not the greatest thing, but at least that's better than being hypocrites. When Jesus speaks to the sinners and the tax collectors, he seems to be more comfortable around them than he does the Pharisees. Why? Well, because it's better at least to not make a pretense of something that you're not. And this is also why he said to, to them that the, that the sinners and the tax collectors will make it into heaven before you. Because this hypocrisy, this attempt to be respectable is the greatest enemy right, towards genuine spirituality. So let me begin here by placing this Sermon on the Mount in the context of the book. We have preached up to this point through chapters 1 through 4 where we heard about Jesus. In chapter 1, we heard about the genealogy. In chapter 2, the Old Testament testified to him. In chapter 3, the forerunner, John the Baptist, came and the father um, anointed him with the Spirit in, in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, we even saw the testimony, the sort of backhanded testimony of the devil. But all of those things were about Jesus. Jesus really didn't say much or do much there. But then when we get here from 5 to 25, this is where we hear from Jesus. So the first four chapters set us up to hear him well. Once you know who he is, you're in a position to hear from him. And what Jesus then does in these chapters I have in front of you is this. He will give us five major discrete discourses about discipleship. He begins here in chapters 5 through 7 with the Sermon on the Mount. Then in chapter 10, he will send out the 12 on a mission uh, in which they will uh, face various amounts of success and a lot of persecution. In chapter 13, he talks about the parables of the kingdom and explains why it is that even though this is the best message in all the world, some people still reject it. In chapter 18, he talks about family values and the, the radical need to love one another in the family. And in 24 and 25, he gives us uh, in, uh, a hopeful way to endure even when Jesus' coming is delayed. Now, I've put them up here very discreetly and clearly. You can't miss them. But what I'm doing here visually is exactly what Jesus has done, or what Matthew has done in a literary way. Because in Matthew, the, all of these discourses are very clearly um, 
set off from one another. So that when you get here then to the very last verse of the book, and Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, it's a very easy thing then to look back and say, well, what is that? And here you have sort of a manual of discipleship. Sermon on the Mount, chapter 10, 13, 18, 24 to 25. So with this beginning here, chapters 5 to 7, the question in front of us today is, why, why start here? Why is it that Jesus says what he says in the Sermon on the Mount as the very first part of his discipleship campaign? And let me just pay, uh, pull a page from Jesus' notebook and say, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a political campaign. That's not in there, but it's like what Jesus might say. How in the world can Jesus' ministry be compared to a political campaign? Well, it's like this. As you remember during the political runs the last several years, there would always be debates at the beginning. And each one of the candidates would stand up and try to distinguish themselves and show how they stood apart from the others. In a lot of ways, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is distinguishing himself from the status quo, from the culture that's accepted, from the, from the direction that the whole culture is headed. And he has to do this because it is the Pharisees who held power over the people. So as you've already been introduced, as we looked uh, at the passage today, what Jesus is going to do is draw a sharp divide between what he teaches and what the Pharisees teach. In fact, he's going to say it in such explicit terms, he will say the Pharisees aren't even going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Why does he have to do that? Well, here's the reason why because the Pharisees held power over the people. It, um, there are various factions that we meet in the New Testament, Sadducees um, uh, and Pharisees and scribes, but what distinguishes the Pharisees is that they were like the local pastors or elders of a congregation. That is, any town that had over 10 men in it would establish a synagogue, and the Pharisees ruled over that. They had the power to admit people to it or kick people out of it. And it's a scary thing. Because when you get kicked out of the synagogue, then everyone shuns you and it's very difficult to buy or sell or trade or have social interaction with anybody else. And so if the Pharisees don't like you, they kick you out of the synagogue and you're in great trouble. Now, to distinguish these Pharisees just a little bit from the Sadducees, the Sadducees gained their power by their relationship to the temple. They all, therefore, lived in Jerusalem. Remember now that the Sermon on the Mount takes place in Galilee, so we're 80 miles away. And we might as well be 800 miles away because, frankly, the Sadducees don't matter to us here. And that's why this discourse is, is spoken, first of all, against the Pharisees. Number one, they had the power. But more importantly is this. Pharisees were revered by the people as examples of those who pleased God. And this is the problem. Uh, as we look at the New Testament, the New Testament actually exposes who these people were, and so it's probably hard for us to imagine that anyone would look up to a Pharisee because we kind of look down our noses at them as the hypocrites, and that's because Jesus has told us this. But if you and I were living immersed in the culture of the time, we would have nothing but respect for these people who were considered to be defenders of the faith, zealous and righteous and meticulous about everything. If you had a daughter, you would be pleased if she grew up to marry a Pharisee. 
if you had a son, you'd be pleased if he grew up to be one. And again, Jesus exposes them for who they are, but they were the icons of religiousness. Most people thought to themselves, I could never do that, but if I really got serious about things, that's what I would live like. Now, the problem, of course, as Jesus tells us here, is that these people were no, really not concerned about inner righteousness. They were very concerned about looking good on the outside. And so what they would do is they would cherry pick the laws of God, choose the ones that were fairly easy, make up extra little rules about them to make themselves feel good, but, but really had taken the whole culture in the wrong direction. So for example, uh, the Sabbath problem. Jesus has trouble with them over the Sabbath because they have made up extra little rules. Jesus is out walking with his disciples one day and they're walking through a grain field and uh, the disciples reach out and they grab a little head of grain for a snack of granola. And the truth is that the Sabbath law in the Old Testament is very, not very much written about it except that you don't work on the Sabbath, you take a day of rest, you trust that God will supply your needs, and you spend time worshiping him and enjoying him. That's all there is. But the Pharisees added these extra little rules to it, and they said, oh, look at that. You plucked a head of grain. That's working. Well, no. Jesus does not violate any of the Sabbath laws, neither do his disciples. What they violate are the Pharisees' extra laws they added to it. So it, it causes all sorts of great conflict, and herein lies the problem. Because in the culture of the day, when these people looked at the Pharisees, what they would do is they would say, well, if I've heard the message of Jesus, I've heard the message of John, and I've repented of my sin, and I'm going to get really serious about my spiritual life now, what should I do next? You see the problem coming here? What they would do is they would look at this. They'd say, well, those people over here, the Pharisees, these are the blessed people by God. They're proud and they're satisfied and they're confident. They're aggressive. They're powerful. They're zealous. These are the icons. I guess if I want to be a disciple of Jesus, I need to become more like the Pharisees. And that's the problem. And that's why Jesus speaks what he does here. And Jesus says, no, that's exactly the wrong thing. I don't want you to be like them. Now, you, you may have caught some of this last week when Jeremy uh, shared with us his anti-beatitudes. This is a slide from his message last week where he talked about the opposite, the way the world thinks about things. Blessed are the entitled, for they grab what they want. Blessed are the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Blessed are the aggressive, for they shall win. Blessed are the greedy, for they shall get more and more. Blessed are the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Blessed are the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Blessed are the popular, for this world is at their feet. Now, Jeremy didn't talk too much about the Pharisees because, in all fairness, in those first 16 verses, it doesn't mention them yet. And so it only mentions them in our passage today. But you can bet that they were the foil against which Jesus told the Beatitudes. So what Jesus is doing here in 1 to 16, and especially in this passage today, is he is turning their world upside down. They thought that the Pharisees were blessed, and Jesus says, no, 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 this, this is not the blessed life. These are actually the unblessed. What I want you to do is this. The people who are truly blessed are those people you wouldn't expect. Those humble, those meek, those hungry for righteousness and thirsty for righteousness. The persecuted, the unknown, the wholehearted, the disciples. 
this is how I want you to be. And so in order to speak to the culture of his day, he has to kind of tear down what their assumptions were about spirituality and then rebuild them from the Bible up. And that's exactly what he's going to do here in this passage. So let me begin then with uh, this, with the, the passage we just read, where Jesus says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the first point is this. Want you to know Jesus is not against the law. When he says, you've heard it said, he's not talking about, this is what Moses said, and now I'm going to change it. But rather, given the culture and the climate of his times, here's the way the Pharisees interpret things, but I say unto you, here's what Moses really means. <clears throat> the second thing is this. What Jesus is against is the Pharisees, and notice the word here, the ESV uses the language, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and that's a very good word, because what they have done here is they've taken the bite out of the law. They have um, made it much easier than it actually is. What he's against is the Pharisees relaxing the law and their teaching. They teach it overtly, and they teach it by example, and so that's what he's against. Point number three is simply this. The Pharisees are not your spiritual role models. They're not even in the kingdom of heaven. They're not saved. They're not God's people. So again, just like that political campaign, Jesus comes along and says, look, here's the difference. He couldn't be more clear. If you want to get in the kingdom of heaven, you have to have a different kind of righteousness. Now, he says it here. Uh, your righteousness must exceed them, and they would look at this and say, how in the world can you do more than what these guys do? And the answer is, well, you can't do more, but you can go inside. The only kind of righteousness which will get you into the kingdom is an inner kind of righteousness, not an outward one. God is concerned about character, not reputation. So let's get those ideas straight here first. So I'll, let me summarize it like this. Jesus' teaching about the law then classes, clashes with the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders, the common people. The Pharisees found it easier to domesticate the law than submit to it. So they searched for the least demanding interpretations and wiggled through every loophole. They reduced the lion of the Mosaic law into a harmless house cat they could easily control. Or so they thought until the lion of Judah came to restore the power and the beauty of Moses' teaching. So what Jesus is going to do at this point then is to give us six examples that contrast the Pharisaic teaching with the real, true Old Testament teaching. And he's going to begin with the sixth commandment, murder. He'll proceed then with the seventh commandment, adultery. And then he'll talk about oaths and, and uh, retaliation and laws of mercy and he will conclude then um, with the statement about loving your neighbors. So what, what we want to do here today, we don't have time to look at all of those, but to look at the first two and the last one. So let me begin like this. God gives ten commandments um, to his people. So we've got over here on the right-hand side the murder, which Jesus deals with first, and then adultery, which he deals with next, and then lying, which he's going to deal with under the topic of oaths and speaking honestly. Now, I've got stealing and your name in vain and no other gods just as a sample here 
of some of the other Ten Commandments, but they're, they're sort of grayed out because Jesus doesn't deal with them in this passage. But to make the point is this, that when God first gave those Ten Commandments, he was simply sketching out the limits, the boundaries of poor behavior. He wasn't giving us the total part of the law, or he wasn't expressing the whole thing. Let me say it like this. God gave Ten Commandments as a summary of his will that defined the boundaries of acceptable behavior. He intended that they would introduce but not exhaust the fuller teaching of the rest of the books of the Old Testament. God fills in the void with more positive descriptions of desired conduct in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. For example, the short sixth commandment, you shall not murder, prohibited the taking of life of another person unjustly, but that was just the outer limit of the teaching that centered on treating others with dignity. Throughout the law, many additional examples of behavior explain and extend the teaching of how one relates to another by protecting life and caring for a neighbor. For example, look at this one. Leviticus 19, verses 17 to 18. This is another part of the law where God speaks about how to treat one's neighbor. And notice, he says this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Now again, let me just make it really explicit. If you think the Old Testament is a bunch of outward laws and, and does not deal with the heart, think again. Because this whole idea of the heart, what you're like on the inside, what you love and what your affections are, that's exactly what Moses is talking about. So when Jesus focuses on the heart in the Sermon on the Mount, he's simply following the spirit and the intent of the law. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Now, recognize exactly what he's implying here. What he's implying is this, that in the day-to-day business of living with brothers and sisters in the community, there are going to be problems. There will be offenses. There will be temptations to hate a neighbor. But what's the solution? The solution is you go talk with them. You go reason frankly. You don't talk about them. You don't gossip about them. You actually go to them. And you know what? You don't just sort of subtly make a hint here. You reason frankly. I love that. Paul would say you speak the truth in love. You really are intent about making this relationship better. So you say, man, we just, we just need a discussion here. We need to have a frank talk. Let's talk this thing through together. So you reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. Because most of the time, if you have a problem with someone and you go speak to them face-to-face in a very upfront, forward way, you can make that relationship good. And, and if you don't, then you might well incur sin because of him. And furthermore, even if things broke down, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. I don't want you to feel bad about your neighbors, the sons of your own people. And so he gives all sorts of advice there about how to deal with interpersonal relationships that deal with the heart, that deal with love, and he summarizes the whole thing, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, don't miss perhaps the most important part of the whole passage, and that is this, I am Yahweh. Now, this particular verse comes out of a whole section in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, where this phrase, I am the Lord, is peppered all the way through. It's not simply an authoritarian statement where God says, you better do this because I'm in charge. But much more, although he does have the authority, it's much more like this, 
that this is who I am and this is who I want you to be. That is, if you are to reflect me well, if you're made in my image and you want to reflect the image of God, then you need to love your neighbor. Why? Because I am Yahweh and I love them too. If you don't believe that, take a look at the way God treats the world. He sent his only begotten son to save those who have rejected him. Take a look at the way he speaks to Cain. Take a look at the way he speaks to that annoying Jacob. God is just loving and speaks frankly, reasons frankly with people and goes after them. So the whole point of this is, look, if you want to be like Yahweh, this is the way you're supposed to be. Now, this is not just a New Testament invention. This is the Old Testament way it's always been. So that when Jesus finishes talking about <clears throat> what he does here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he concludes chapter 7 and verse 12 with this, which is the actual uh, ending of the message. Then he just has sort of an invitation afterwards. But this is like the, 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 the tie-up at the end. And he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You see this? What, what he's saying is loving your neighbor is just, it's, 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 it's all over the law. And it's not just the law, it's all the prophets too. So this is, in fact, the teaching that uh, Jesus gives to us. Today, we might say that the Pharisees were cherry-picking. They kept one uh, law by not outwardly murdering the neighbor, but they failed to follow ten more that disallowed hatred in the heart and commanded genuine love. They kept the letter of one law, but they missed the spirit of all the rest. Jesus reads the Old Testament law in its context, explaining this holistic teaching about murder and hate. So the way Jesus would then explain this, as Moses would as well, is this. That murder and that adultery and that lying, those are just like minimum standards. But just because you haven't done those things in an outward sort of a way, don't, don't think that anger is not just as bad and lust and deception are just as bad because those things are out of bounds as well. Those things do not hit the goal. What is the goal? The goal is this. What God really wants is us to love. And if you're simply hanging out here saying, well, I haven't committed these outward acts, and you're in this level of respectability, you're still not going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. This is not what God requires of his people. What he requires is what's there at the center. So let me, let me explain it like this in a way that perhaps makes you know, more immediate sense to all of us. And let's just imagine a family in a stressful situation it's time to pack up to go on vacation. And mom is really, really busy trying to get the whole family together and, and the kids are just not cooperating, they're not doing their part, and they're fighting. Or, or maybe, you know, it's a stressful situation like the family's getting ready to come to church. You know, we've all been there, right? And the stress is so hard that, that it's like, oh, everybody's at each other and they're fighting as we're going to church and as soon as we get into the parking lot, all of a sudden the smile comes back out, everything's fine, yeah, we're good, we're good. But there's been stress, right? So let's take one of those situations and say, the mother has just come to her wit's end. She just says, you know, I, I, just, I just had those kids. They're not, they're not doing their job, what I asked them to do. Uh, they're fighting each other. And so just out of absolute frustration, in order to get something done, she has to take them and sit them down on both ends of the couch and say, you guys just sit there and don't hit each other. Now, 10 minutes later, the, the time passes, and the two kids have not hit each other, have they obeyed their mom? 
Well, yeah, I guess, but the bar is pretty low, right? Yeah, they didn't hit each other. But everybody knows that's not what mom wants, right? Just, just imagine, just imagine the miracle if the kids sat there for a moment and, and they looked at each other and one said to the other, you know, I'm really sorry I hit you before. And the other kid said, yeah, me too. We shouldn't have done that. I'm, you're, you're my brother. You're my sister. I, I shouldn't have done that. <clears throat> and then they start to talk and one of the kids says, yeah, you know what? We really, we really stressed mom out today and we really weren't doing what we should have been doing and we should have we should have worked and helped her. I mean, she's been so good to us. She, she does so many things for us. She sacrifices for us, and I just feel terrible about that. And, and the other one says, yeah, let's go to mom. And you go to mom, and you say, mom, we're so sorry that we disappointed you, that we didn't help you, and you've been so good to us, and we just did not return to you what, what we owed you. And so we kind of made a game out of it, and we got all of our bags packed, and we cleaned up the house, and uh, we just want to tell you thanks so much for being our mom. Now, Kids, you ought to try this sometimes, right? <laughs> and when you do, you will, number one, have to pick your mom up off the floor. But after you do that, right, you will say, yes, this is what, this is what they were supposed to do. Now they've obeyed their mom, right? Not just avoiding that outward negative thing, but the spirit of the law, the intent of the law. And this is exactly what Jesus is getting at here in, in all of these points. So, let me then look at the words here themselves in this passage. You've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Again, I hope I've made the point, I hope I've persuaded you at this point, Jesus is not adding two things. He is simply repeating that the center of the commandment, the will of God, is that one would love each other from their heart. So to use the word you fool is a term of contempt that pushes someone beyond the pale, that pushes someone away from us. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an attitude of hatred. It's an attitude of contempt. It is not murder, but it's the kind of thing that will lead to murder. Because we all know in general, Jesus says none of that is acceptable. If you do this, this is the mark of an unchanged heart. Now, obviously, we're not talking about perfection. All of us sin. But he says if this is the regular practice, if this is the, if this is the genuine response of your heart, this is the mark of an unsaved heart. These actions all indicate that. The solution, of course, is to see every brother and sister as valuable and go to extreme measures to reconcile relationships. That's why he says, if you find yourself at the altar and you say, oh, I have a problem with my neighbor, you leave your gift there. Because more important than religious service is right relationships within the family. This is not a peripheral concern for God. It is the difference between heaven and hell. It is intended to drive a wedge between pharisaical doctrine and what Jesus is teaching, between that righteousness which looks good on the outside and that which is genuinely good on the inside, only possible by a changed heart of one who's approached Jesus by faith. Let's take a quick look at this next one, the adultery. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, pretty familiar passage. Adultery is wrong, but so is the desire. We know that. But again, Jesus is not amping things up from the Old Testament. This is what the Old Testament taught from the very beginning. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, is there, speaking about the outward acts, but then if you read to the end of the Decalogue, at the end of the Ten Commandments, you get to number 10. And number 10 says, don't covet your neighbor's house, or his donkey, or his wife. Because the first nine say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and the tenth says, and don't even think about it. Because it is that desire which then turns into the action. And so this whole idea of desiring and wanting, um, again, should not be a peripheral concern for us. It's urgent. And Jesus couches it in the most extreme language. Tearing out the eye, cutting off the hand. Now those were never intended as literal solutions to sin. We all know that mutilated and blind people can still lust because lust is a matter of the heart, not just the eye. These are intended as vivid illustrations of the importance of inner righteousness. Given the reality of heaven and hell, if it were a choice between an eye or a hand and one's whole body, the decision, though drastic, would be pretty easy. His point here, though, is that you cannot be a disciple and be comfortable with outward respectability. Sin that is concealed will destroy us. Now, we don't have time to look at the divorce or the oaths or the retaliation. Your ABF leaders and small group leaders have some resources that they can use to help you think through those if you'd like. But I want to get on then to the very last passage for a particular reason. This is the sixth example here in Matthew chapter 5. And it finishes like this. And then the reason I want to talk to you about this is because of the first quote. It says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the reason why this one's so helpful is because this is not an Old Testament quote. The Old Testament never says this. The Old Testament never condones this. Again, what it's a quote of is Pharisaical doctrine. You have heard the Pharisees say this. But I say unto you, and Moses says unto you, and the word of God says unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That was the whole spirit of Leviticus 19 and other passages we looked at. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, I want to talk about this phrase, sons of your father who's in heaven, because I think this is in many ways the key to what we're talking about here. It is the equivalent of that phrase way back in Leviticus 19 that said, I am the Lord. The point is simply this, that if you want to reflect the image of God, if you want to be a son of the Father, this is the way you have to behave. And notice what it says here, so there may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What it's saying is this, that the Father looks at people and says, what can I do for them? Now, recognize this is the absolute opposite of the Pharisaic way, of the human way, of the worldly way. We are all taught, and our sinful nature confirms, that when you look at other people, the first thing you do is say, hmm, what can I get from them? What do they have that they can give to me? Now, if you don't realize you're thinking that, just examine your motives a little bit better. 
So often it is, what does this person have that I can get? How can I enrich myself from them? And, and what Jesus is saying here is that's exactly the wrong way to think. God is not thinking about what he can get from people. He's thinking about what he can give to them. So that the changed heart from the inside says, I want to be like my father. So it's not just what I look at, it's how I look. And, and when I see a person, I don't say, what can I get from them? But I say, how can I further God's work in their life? Now let's just take this back to David for a second, all right? David is the poster child for the one who breaks the sixth and the seventh commandments. He murders Uriah. He commits adultery with his wife. If David had looked at Bathsheba and said, I wonder what God is attempting to do in her life and how could I contribute to it? If that were his intent, his, intent, his choices would have been radically different. If he looked at Uriah and said, I wonder what exactly God is attempting to do in this man's life, how can I contribute to that? His tack would have been completely different. It is what we look at, but it's also more important how we look at it. I mean, let's just be honest here. When we, t when we take a look at that, uh, at that command about adultery and lustful intent, there are a lot of things we ought not to look at. Both men and women, we ought not to see, and that's a good thing. But I think we need to go a little bit deeper and say, not just what should I not look at, but how should I view the world and people? And when we start to transform this so that we become sons of the Father who's in heaven and say, what can I do for you? What, how can I contribute to you? What can I give to you? Then all of a sudden, the focus on what I can get out of it is, is changed. It's turned upside down. And that's exactly what Jesus is after here in these behaviors. So let me then just quickly look at chapter 6. And again, it seems as though we're going under a new topic, but we're really not. The underlying principle is still the same. The text says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, in chapter 5, we talked about our behaviors. In chapter 6, we're going to talk about our practices. But the same underlying thing about respectability is here, right? If you do this to be seen by them, you'll have no reward from your father who's in secret. And so the first example is giving. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet uh, before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, uh, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So Jesus speaks of the pharisaical way here as an economic transaction. They pay for something, and they get the reward. They've paid for the praise of men, and they get that back, and that's all they get. That is the only reward they have. But again, all they're doing here is in order to be seen by men because the respectability is really good on the outside. What Jesus says here is do this stuff in secret. Why? Because if you're really concerned only what the Father thinks, it doesn't really matter what other people see. If your heart is changed from the inside out. So, the whole idea of prayer and fasting, same ideas, in fact, the very same formula. Again, here he talks about the hypocrites because their character and their reputation don't match. Now, 
I wish we could go on, but we have much more to do this morning. I'll talk to you about it in a moment. But let me just come to the conclusion then of this sermon and say, I, I don't know exactly how you feel. I don't know if you feel wrecked or disturbed or guilty. And I, I want to say that none of that is the point here. This is a very difficult part of the, part of the sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where God calls us to deep spirituality. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, there is no room for playing religious games. There's no room for image management. God desires truth in the inward parts. What Jesus is doing here is stretching the distance between what we were and what we can be. And he says, this is the way I want you to behave. You begin to realize that there's no way for us to bridge that gap. His call to a life of love and purity calls us away from lust and hate. But here's the trouble. It's far too easy in a religious society such as Israel or even a Grace Baptist church for us to rely on a reputation that is skin deep. The deceitfulness of sin will persuade us to live double lives. The enemy whispers, as long as the outside is clean, no one will know what goes on in the heart. But that only describes a kind of righteousness which will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to let Jesus' words shine brightly on our hearts. Because if his words don't shine brightly on our hearts, they will not shine before men. Once we see what Jesus calls us to, we can never be the same. We must either follow him passionately by faith or settle for our own reputation of righteousness. And Jesus made pretty clear where that will lead. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider your words, all of us here who have considered them thoughtfully are deeply aware of our failures in front of you. And yet, Lord, I don't think it's the failures you want us to think about, but the opportunity and the heights to which you've called us. And Lord, I pray that my sisters and brothers who have trusted you by faith might experience that changing power of God in our lives, that we might truly be the sons and daughters of God, that we might be able to look out at others as you do. And rather than seeing what we can get from them, understand what you're doing in their lives and contribute to them, all because we are so deeply satisfied and content with the love which you have for us. Lord, help us to understand how to love others because you first loved us and to live a completely different kind of radical lifestyle than those who are content with just image management, I pray. Lord, Convict us where we need convicting, empower us, and Lord, I pray that we would become the kind of body which shines as a light set on a hill that tells you of your glory to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name.